Our text for today comes from Mark 12, (laughs) verses 13 through 17. Uh, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought, brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, it's good to be with you this morning on uh, this pre-election Sunday, uh, where we are going to be talking a little bit about the fact that Jesus is president, that Jesus is president. I think it's going to be good. So uh, just to make you guys aware, in second service, we are going to be formally welcoming two new members into the membership of Grace Community Church, but they happen to be here this morning, Zach and Olivia Bielendorf. Uh, We're not going to make them stand up for two services, but we just wanted to let you guys know uh, that they've um, signed their names in blood like the rest of you should either have or should have. All right? All right. Now, did any of you not know that there was an election this week? If you, if you weren't aware that there was an election, raise your hand so that we all know that you pay no attention. All right, Rich, just you. Okay, Marissa, great. Uh, well, there is an election this week, and I'm sorry if I've just made you aware of that. In Iowa, we're going to be, elect, uh, we're going to be voting to elect a president, right, and a senator or two, a couple of congresspeople. Uh, on the ballot in Iowa, we'll, we'll also be voting to retain Supreme Court judges, if you, that's the type of thing you're into. And uh, there's also an interesting ballot measure on our ballots this, uh, this year. You'll see a box that you can check as to whether or not you would like to authorize a convention to revise the Iowa uh, state constitution. That's on the ballot because every 10 years, by law, it's required that it's on the ballot. And so it's there again this year. Uh, Now, on a county level in Black Hawk County, we are going to vote on the county sheriff, right, who the county sheriff will be, but also the county auditor, the county supervisors, and most interestingly to me, the county soil and water commission. You also get to vote on that. I am still waiting for the Black Hawk County soil and water commissioner to make up a hat that says make Black Hawk County's waterways great again. Uh, but that's a lot to fit on a hat, and so we shouldn't hold our breath in anticipation of it. I might wear that hat. Uh, but the point being, in a few days, we're going to be given an opportunity by the state and our nation to vote on some things and some people, right? That's what we're going to do. Uh, we get to share our opinion, which is wonderful. And our opinion is just one opinion in a sea of other opinions. And the people running for office who uh, uh, acquire the most opinions shared in their favor while they get elected to office, and then they will do the job that they are elected to do, hopefully. And when I describe it that way, our democratic system sounds quaint, doesn't it? It's kind of quaint. It's just an opinion-gathering experience. But if you have been paying any attention to the political atmosphere of our day, 
it has our uh, the last couple of years, the last couple of decades really have been anything but quaint, haven't they? It's been contentious to the max, actually. I read on Thursday that this year's election has shattered spending records over the previous the election of four years ago. The current state Senate race between Joni Ertz and Teresa Greenfield, I can say their names because I've only seen five million uh, ads on television about either of them, is currently either the second or third most expensive Senate race in American history, which is crazy, little old Iowa, right? And currently, it's being estimated that this election is going to cost $10.9 billion. $10.9 billion. That's almost $4 billion more than it was spent in 2016. Could you imagine what you could do with $10.9 billion? Yeah. I might actually buy a bike. Uh, all of that money, right, and all of that energy... And all of the news coverage has kind of converged on us in our day. Have you felt it kind of closing in on you like a vice over the last number of months? And chances are, here's the thing, you have an opinion, don't you? You have an opinion about who uh, you are going to vote for or who should be elected to office. And chances are, just because of the heightened environment that we're in now, that you feel strongly about it. You feel strongly about it. I mean, and just speaking for myself, I do also feel quite strongly about this election. If the people I don't want to get elected to the County Soil and Water Commission don't get elected, I am going to lose my marbles, all right? <laughs> Good, I'm glad that got a laugh. I was really hoping. Uh, here's the thing. Generally speaking, there is a lot of fear and anxiety and mistrust around this election, isn't there? A lot. Which is not surprising when people are spending a, a, almost $11 billion to scientifically micro-target the anxiety-producing parts of our brain, right? This is what they're doing with this money. Trying to convince all of us that this is a life-or-death situation uh, and that the people on the other side of the opinion that we hold are evil now, here's what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying we shouldn't care, right? There's, there's, no reason not to, uh, there's no reason not to vote, and there's no reason not to care, actually. We should give our opinion. They ask for it. We can give it, right? Uh, but speaking as a Christian and as a pastor this morning, I believe that people who follow Jesus need to engage with politics and elections differently than people who don't. People who make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord need to live differently around these political issues and political questions of our day, primarily because if you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will not treat politics as though they are an ultimate thing. I saw a tweet from a pastor that I follow this morning, and he's today they're celebrating the 39th uh, anniversary of their church. And he said in that tweet, uh, 39 years ago today, we started our church uh, Ronald Reagan was president, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, and he went through a list of other world leaders, and he said, and Jesus is Lord, only one is still in office, right? It's this affirmation of the reality that, that political uh, candidates come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. And one of the best indicators, here's the truth, one of the best indicators of whether or not we as individuals have invested too much of ourselves in politics is the amount of fear and anxiety we're bringing into this election over the next number of days. 
And so today, I want to envision with us together as a group of people a, a different way and maybe make a different kind of statement of where we put our trust. When we get caught up in the partisanship of our current political system and we are tempted to put too much hope in governments or in our candidate or in our side, I think the best thing we can do is to shift our attention and focus onto the truth and away from the lie of uh, kind of the, the corporate advertising that's been, uh, that's been shot directly into our cerebral cortex. The tr here's the primary truth that I want us to focus on this morning. The primary truth, no matter who, we, who is elected president of the United States in a few days, no matter who, we know who the president of the world is, don't we? It's Jesus. And so to, this morning, I want us to make the declaration, Jesus for president. How's that sound? Jesus for president. Now, that may sound strange, but I'm using the phrase because Jesus is obviously uh, not on the ballot, right? On Tuesday, Jesus isn't on the ballot. You can't vote for Jesus. The closest thing you can get to voting for Jesus is Jesus, and I wouldn't advise it. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kanye's on the ballot. Uh, uh, but here's the thing. He wasn't on the ballot to become emperor of Rome either, was he, in the first century? But I think that is the phrase that closely approximates this phrase that the church first used to describe who Jesus was. And when the first Christians wanted to describe who Jesus was, this is what they said. Jesus is Lord. It was the first creed of the early church. When you, when you asked one of the first Christians what they believed about this resurrected Messiah, what, about who this Jesus was, they would say to you, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, in our day, that phrase sounds weird. It might sound familiar to some of you because you've been around church for a little while, but, in, but for most people in our day, it sounds strange because we don't have kings and lords, do we? We don't really understand uh, in the way that the people in the first century would have understood that phrase. But in the Roman world, uh, the early church lived uh, by this phrase, Jesus is Lord. And the fact that they lived by it was a kind of political statement. It was a political statement because in the empire, Caesar was almost universally referred to as Lord. And it became common practice in, the, in Rome, in the Roman world, to show your allegiance to the empire and to the king by making a formal declaration when you, in public, in, at public events, kind of like how we uh, sing uh, the national anthem, people would stand up and they would make the public declar declaration that, that Caesar was Lord. And so to say that anyone else was Lord was actually a pretty dangerous thing to do. And it became a pretty dangerous thing for early Christians to do. But early Christians made the proclamation that Jesus was Lord and that Caesar was not, by extension, implying that their primary allegiance, their identity, was not found in their Roman citizenship, but rather in their citizenship as members of God's household, of his family, of his kingdom. And because they believed that they belonged to a different kingdom, it transformed the way they lived as citizens in the Roman world. Uh, you see, saying Jesus for president is kind of a proclamation that should give us hope and remind us of this powerful biblical truth. That though the kingdoms and the countries of this world are important and the things that happen in them are important, 
the things that take place, the proclamation that Jesus is are not ultimate. For those who make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, we are called to live differently. And I think on the eve of an election where the world is telling us to place all of our hope and all of our trust in politics, the church is called to articulate a different way. And what I hope to show you is that those who make the confession that Jesus is Lord are called to be a kind of alternative to the anger and the enmity of our time. Now, in our teaching text for today, Jesus gives a kind of perfect example for us of what and how, uh, what we should and how we should engage with politics differently as followers of Jesus. I think Jesus makes this quite clear in our teaching text for today. Uh, Now, if you're in the room, you might, you might be familiar with this story of Jesus and the question of whether he should or whether he, which side of the ledger he falls on, on whether you should pay taxes to Caesar. And it's easy to read this story and just read it as a story that applies to taxes. But I think the idea that Jesus is teaching here runs deeper than taxes and can actually help us navigate our political moment that we find ourselves in currently. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 12. It might be helpful for you to have it open as we talk through this this morning. Now, just a chapter or two earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus has come into the city of Jerusalem. Just Jerusalem, as many of you know, was the center of both religious and political life for the nation of Israel in Jesus' day. And what you need to understand is that in Jesus' day, Israel was occupied territory. It was not sovereign. It was occupied by the Roman Empire. Now, they allowed Israel to continue to worship their God, but Uh, But what Rome did in order to maintain control was they set up a series of puppet kings, the Herodians or the Herods you'll read about in scripture, as a means of maintaining control over the region. And even from time to time, the Roman legions would sweep into Jerusalem specifically to stamp down revolts against the government. This ultimately came to a head in AD 70 when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The people of Israel were totally scattered all throughout uh, the world, and the temple was destroyed entirely. But the thing that the the Romans did in Jesus' day that made them the most angry, that made Jews in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas the most angry, the thing they could not put up with in any way, shape, or form, was that they levied taxes on them, right? They taxed them. They actually taxed them quite heavily. Uh, The Romans made Jewish people pay Roman taxes in order to support the empire, and this drove the Israelites crazy, and it was highly, highly controversial, as you would assume. And so when Jesus is asked uh, whether we should pay taxes, whether not we, but whether they should pay taxes, he was being asked a highly, highly contentious political question. And it was even more intense than asking if you should vote for universal health care or not, for instance. It was much more intense than that. It was more intense whether uh, that the question that was asked Jesus was much more intense than the question of whether you should have free trade or not, right? And it was very much more intense than the question of whether or not we should uh, sign on to the Green New Deal, for instance, right? These are con- slightly contentious political questions in our day, but they uh, pale in comparison to the level of contention that were revolved around these Roman taxes in Jerusalem at this time. 
If Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes, he was going to be branded a revolutionary against the Roman government. And the religious leaders that didn't like Jesus could have easily had an excuse to just have him dispatched with. And if he said, yes, pay your taxes, well, then he, then he, was, a, uh, uh, then he was a traitor to his own people. And the people who wanted to dismiss him could say to, their, to his own people that this man doesn't even support you. He's a Roman sympathizer. Let's boot him, right? This was one of those trap questions, and Jesus knows this. And so he answers Mark uh, chapter 20 in a brilliant way. Here's how he does it. In verse 15 of Mark uh, chapter 12, he says this. To the, he, this is how he responds to this question. He says, bring me a denarius, which was a coin, and let me look at it. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so it's this very simple question that he asks when, he, when someone hands him the coin. He receives it. He says this, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And the people tell him, it's Caesar's picture and it's his inscription on the coin. So then Jesus says the famous line, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Now, this is a simple answer, isn't it? It's a really, really simple answer. But sometimes the most brilliant answers happen to be the simplest ones, don't they? The passage even says the, that the response of the crowd that was there to hear this was amazement. They were amazed at this answer. But there is some stuff happening, actually, under the surface, below the surface of this simple response, that we have a hard time seeing from our modern perspective. Why was it that this, the way Jesus answered this question was so amazing? And in order to grasp the point Jesus is making here, we need to understand some things that his audience would have inherently understood. Any Jewish person hearing the question, whose image and inscription is on this coin, first would have known that humans were made in the image of God. Any good Jew would have, would have known this, and their minds would have been called immediately back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where God says uh, male and female, he created them in his image. And the, the second thing that any Jewish person who was paying attention to what Jesus said would have known is that they would have known that it was idolatrous for a person to put their image on anything. Now, they believed this. It, in, it, it sounds funny to us because of social media and the fact that we have our, our image all over everything. But Jews of Jesus' day did, believed that by, because of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it was idolatrous for anyone to put their image on anything, to stamp their picture on anything. Not just gods, but anyone and anything, which really puts a damper on your profile picture. Uh, just FYI. Uh, in fact, we know from historical record that Jewish people made so much noise uh, about having to use coins with Caesar's image on them that the Roman authorities finally got tired of hearing them complain and relented and began to print special coins for the Jewish people to use that didn't have Caesar's image on them, right? We know this from historical record. So with this in mind, it becomes clear that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were asking Jesus a kingdom of this world question, weren't they? This is a way of thinking about it. They were asking him a kingdom of this world question that he wanted to turn into a kingdom of God question. They were asking him a political question. On which side of this kingdom of this world political debate are you on? Let's, let's kind of pigeonhole you. Let's figure out where you stand. They wanted to trap him in a political question. They were concerned to pin him down to politically, to draw him in the, into the middle of a hot debate. This is what they wanted to do. 
It would be like if someone, if one of you in this room figured out how to get me to publicly tell you or to tell everyone who I was voting for this election cycle. It would be a lose-lose situation, right? It would be a lose-lose situation. But Jesus was not interested in the political debate. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so he flips the conversation entirely, and he turns it from a kingdom of this world question into a kingdom of God question. Now, to help us understand a little bit of what Jesus was saying here, the pastor and scholar, uh, pastor in Minnesota, Greg Boyd, does a great job of summing up what we should hear Jesus saying in this story. So, Boyd speaks in the first person here for Jesus, imagining Jesus saying something like this when he says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar. So, listen up. It'll be on the screen as well. This is what Boyd imagines Jesus saying. Are we Jews, who are supposed to be God's chosen people, actually going to argue about whether or not we should give back to Caesar the idolatrous medal that he demands of us? Since it bears his idolatrous image, it belongs to him, and you can give it, you can give it all back to him for all I care. The question that we, uh, we who know the one true God ought to be focusing on, and the only question I care to address is this, are we giving back to God all that bears him, his image? Are we giving God our whole selves? You see, it is not that God does not care about our communities or our countries or our world. It's just that his agenda for the world is a little bit different than our agenda for the world. And so, drawing this, uh, taking this story and applying it to this, uh, this phrase, Jesus for president, I think we can kind of understand what Jesus is saying like this. If we, if, we look at, uh, if we look at our current political situation through the lens of what Jesus is teaching here, I think we can say something like this. Vote for whomever you want with your vote, but vote for Jesus with your life. Bring your, bring your vote to bear however you want. They ask your opinion, give it. Give your opinion about the way the kingdom of the world should be structured. It's nice, it's a luxury in the United States that we have the ability to do this. But vote for Jesus with the way you live. But the question then remains, how do I vote for Jesus with my life, right? How do I do that? How do we live as kingdom of God people in the midst of the kingdom of this world? How do we do that? I would argue that the church of Jesus Christ is called, first and foremost, the way we live as kingdom of God people, the way we vote for Jesus with our lives is by being a reconciling presence in the world. A reconciling presence in the world. The church is called to be a reconciling presence. Now, I get this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And beginning in verse 13, this is what he says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Fascinating, right? He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
So the project of God, his plan and his purpose, the agenda of the kingdom of God is to reconcile all people to himself, thus making peace, bringing down the walls of hostility. Actually, this passage says putting to death the hostility that exists between peoples. And it is in this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he tells us this is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what Jesus' death did. Jesus' death smashed to pieces the walls that divide and separate people. He smashed to pieces the walls that separate people from God. And so if Jesus, if, if if the church is a people who proclaim that Jesus is president, that Jesus is Lord, and we vote for Jesus with our lives, we ought to be a reconciling force in the world, a reconciling people in the world, bringing down the walls of hostility, right? Not erecting them. We are called to be reconcilers and peace bringers, not dividers, and most certainly not partisans. This is why, again, in the kingdom of God, there is no room for partisanship. And while you may have your opinions about how the structures of the kingdoms of this world should be structured, Christians' primary responsibility are to be reconcilers, are to be peace bringers, are to be those who can take people from disparate sides of a particular debate and have a reasonable discussion in such a way as that these people are reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. You see, our political opinions are second-order opinions. Which is why at Grace Community Church, I have always envisioned that this would be the type of place where both Democrats and Republicans can be at church together. Because it's a second order thing. It's not a first order thing. The first order thing is the kingdom of God. The first order thing is the reign and rule of Jesus. The first order thing is seeing people reconciled back to God, saved by the, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first order thing is about being a community of love and reconciliation in the midst of our broken world. A second order thing is who you vote for. And if that's a second order thing, then we ought to be able to have of normal conversations, even slight disagreements about the way that that works itself out in our societies. You know, what, what, I don't know, what do you think the tax rate should be? Seriously, what do you think the tax rate should be? Don't tell me, but anyways. 50%, Nick, <laughs> I think the tax rate should be 50%. That's fine. That's great. Do you think we should have another stimulus bill? Okay, whatever. It's a second order opinion. It really is. In the kingdom of God, the first order opinion of our lives should be, must be, kingdom of God priorities. And that is always to be a reconciling force in this world, not a, not a divisive force, not a separating force, not a wall-building force, but rather a wall-breaking force. And to be honest with you, I think in our day, the church has gotten this at times, and right now, because of the environment we live in, has gotten this backwards. 
In some cases, the church has forfeited its responsibility to be a reconciling community and has rather entrenched itself on one side or the other side of a partisan political divide. It's taken up the mantle of kingdom of this world issues in such a way as that it has created more enmity than it has brought down. Because we have made political affiliations a part of our core identity. And when our identity is at stake, anyone who disagrees with us is an enemy, right? When our identity is at stake. Anybody who disagrees with me is an enemy. But when it's an opinion, right? When it's a second order thing, when it's a little bit lower down on the scale, well then, we can have a conversation. We have allowed ourselves to be co-opted into kingdom of this world debates. We have gotten too worked up about whether or not we should render unto Caesar, but Jesus wants to shift our focus back to the kingdom. He wants to shift our focus back to the kingdom. Instead of entrenching ourselves in a political either-or of our day, we need to try a different approach. Because the one we're trying now isn't working. We already know what the current approach has yielded, don't we? It's not that the things we care about don't matter. They do matter. It's just that when we forget what, what and why kingdom people uh, are called to do, and we forget that our vote is not as important as our responsibility to be reconcilers and peace bringers, we end up giving away our distinctiveness. We end up giving away our witness, actually. And to be honest with you, part of the problem I see in our current environment in America is that church is not different enough. It is too easily given away its witness to one political opinion or another. We have been co-opted into a culture of contempt, and that contempt has worked its way into our hearts, and what we need to do is repent of it. Christians need to repent of it. The church needs to repent of it. And turn back to Jesus to become the kind of reconciling community that he has always wanted us to be. So today what I want to do is simply give you an out. I want to give you an out. I want to give you a way out of the anxiety that you feel over this political election. I want to give you a way out of the anxiety that is going to sweep over our nation on Monday and Tuesday night. I want to give you a way out of the political either-or that you might believe you have to live in. You do not have to participate in this culture of contempt. You do not have to carry around the anger and fear of our current political climate. Even if the person that is elected is not the person you want, right? Because no matter who is elected, the calling of the people of God remains the same. It doesn't change. In 20 years, it will be the same. In 25 years, it'll be the same. In 200 or 2,000 years, Lord will, Lord, if the Lord tarries, it'll be the same. It will not change. To be a people who bring peace, 
who look demonstrably different than the predominant culture, who make the confession that no matter who holds the keys of power in our current expression of the kingdom of the world, we know that the kingdom of God is breaking out all around us. Wherever people are meeting with Jesus, wherever they're encountering a reconciling community, wherever the walls of division and hostility are falling, that's where the kingdom of God is. That's what God is doing. And if a particular bill gets passed in the Senate that you like, great. But that's not what God is doing in the world. It's not. And if we think it is, then we have read our Bibles wrong. Wherever there is a people dedicated to the name and the way of Jesus and are committed to making his kingdom visible by reconciling individuals back to Jesus and by breaking down the walls of hostility that separate people. That's where the kingdom of God is found. That's where it's found. No matter what happens outside of the church, if that is happening within the church, that is what is, that's our calling. That's the kingdom. Now, There's a creed that Jesus gives his followers. Maybe you've read this in Matthew 22. And I'm closing with this this morning. Jesus gives his followers a creed. I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, the the people of Israel have a creed, right? You know, different people, different organizations have creeds. It's a little statement that they live by. In the Old Testament, the creed was called the Shema. it, It was given to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. It goes something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the Shema. And the people of Israel prayed this prayer daily. It was their creed. It was their common prayer. It was the thing that gave their life meaning, focus, significance. It was the thing that reminded them of their calling in this life. It was to serve and love God with everything that they were, to be a distinct people set apart for God in the world. In, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? And I don't know why this person asked Jesus this question, because any Jew would have answered this question the exact same way. The, the greatest commandment is the first commandment, which is functionally the Shema. And, and, and Jesus repeats back to the person who asked this question, the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. But then he makes this little adjustment to the Shema. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls uh, what Jesus does here the Jesus Creed. Because he adds to the Shema. He actually adds a little addendum to this creed of the Israelites for his followers. He gives them a new creed. And do you know what he tacks on to the end of the Shema? You know what he tacks on to the end of the creed? And love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself. Here's what he didn't say. Love only the neighbors who agree with you politically as yourself. Right? That's not what he tacked on to the end of the Shema. The new creed that Jesus gives his followers, has, is, he gave it to them to be a kind of guiding principle for their lives, to follow him. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. It's simple, but again, it's beautiful because it's simple, isn't it? 
We are called to be a reconciling community, reconciling people to God and breaking down the walls of hostility between peoples. This is what a Jesus presidency looks like. Love God and love people. It's what we're called to do. And it's what we're called to be. And here is my closing argument. The world is in desperate need of a church like this. Cedar Falls is in desperate need of a church like that. The American West has lost, the American Western church has lost its way. I'm just going to say it full stop. The evangelical Western movement has lost its way in broad speaking, not as individual churches, but broadly speaking. We have lost this vision of being a reconciling community. And we have given the mantle of our kingdom responsibility away. And the world is desperately in need of a church who will recapture it in such a way as that we can be a shining light of the love and the grace of God in the world. To be an alternative to the vitriol and to the partisanship into the anger, into the into all of the issues of our day. To live out the Jesus Creed, love God and love people, not just in word, but in deed. Not just in word, but in deed. And to be a, the type of people who embody this in such a way that we see the kingdom of God flourishing in all kinds of beautiful in significant ways around us. I'm not saying that God isn't working through the church in the Western world right now. He is. He clearly is. But we need to recapture this picture, don't we? We need to recapture this vision. And if we do, not just us, but the church globally, but I'm speaking to you, if we do, everything will change. Everything. I fully believe that. Let's be a countervailing force in our culture against the pull towards vitriol and pain. And let's be a force towards the love and reconciliation of Jesus. How's that sound? Would you stand with me this morning? And as we close today, I just want to pray for two things. First, that your level of angst about this election, because I just want to address you as, our, as people in our church, that you would, that God would help you to lower the temperature a little bit. I'm a realist, right? I don't assume that any of us will be totally angst-free on Tuesday, right? I'm not expecting us to be totally angst-free. But what I'm, what I'm praying towards is that for everyone in our church, that, he, that God would help us to actively put our hope and faith in Jesus no matter what happens. I'm praying that for myself as well, all right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that we would be the type of people that God wants us to be, first and foremost. So we'd be kingdom people in this world people who orient ourselves around the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus to be a reconciling force in our, in our nation and in our world. All right? Those are our two prayers. Would you join me? Father, we love you. And we pray that uh, this week, God, uh, you would do a, do a divine work in our hearts. You would do a miracle in our hearts, God, 
and that you would replace our angst, our anxiety, our fear, our mistrust, our, uh, our default setting to be partisan, God, that you would replace that with a kind of peace and with a trust in your kingdom. May we make the proclamation every day this week with our lives and in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is president, and no matter who is senator or who is on the county water and soil commission, you are still Lord. And may that kind of bring the level of anxiety down in our hearts and in our lives. So that's one. And two, God, we pray for the church. We pray for this church and we pray for the church in America that you would help us to be this shining example of the love, reconciliation, and peace bringing that Jesus wants to bring in every individual life as they're reconciled back to the Father through his death and resurrection. Would you make us messengers, emissaries of that good news with our very lives? Would everywhere we go, would we bring the temperature down? Would we begin to knock down walls of hostility? Would, would, we, bring, would we be people of peace in the midst of a contentious world? And as we do it, when people ask, why is is this person so much peaceful? Why is this person so much less contentious? Why is this person so much willing to have a conversation with somebody who they may or may not disagree with? We can say, because of Jesus. Because Jesus is my president, and I, do, <laughs> and I care, but the most important thing is that he is on the throne, and he wants to be reconciled to every single human heart. Every single human heart. And so we pray it in the name of that Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. All right, well, thanks, guys. I'm sorry if I was a little worked up this morning. Uh, go to